you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn with me to Matthew 26. Uh, the theme of the conference given to me by your pastor uh, is reform still relevant? Is the reform faith still relevant? We've tried to answer with a resounding yes. On Saturday night, we talked about the importance of the authority of Scripture and the sovereignty of God and the uh, giving of glory to Him in all that we do and pursuing His mission in this world to bring men and women and boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation into the body of His Son, Christ. And this morning, we talked about the sovereignty of God in Jesus' gospel call in Matthew chapter 11. And obviously, the, the, the embrace of the sovereignty of God is such an important part of the Christian life, and that is one of the hallmarks of the Reformed faith, and it's one of the reasons why the Reformed faith is so important. If you don't really embrace the sovereignty of God, you are in for a rough ride in this fallen world. And tonight, I want to look at the sovereignty of God in Jesus' death in really a remarkable passage in Matthew 26. There are two or three things that I want you to be on the lookout for. First, this passage will emphasize the willingness of Jesus to die for our sins, the willingness of Jesus to die for our sins. And we need to pause and think about that for just a little bit. Then, it will emphasize the sovereignty of God, even in the details of Jesus' death down to the level of the timing. It will emphasize the sovereignty of God in the details of Jesus' death, even down to the level of the timing of that death. And then finally, it will show that even though God is sovereign, those who do wickedness will be held responsible. And so we will learn a principle that God's sovereignty in the Bible is never an, argue, an argument against human responsibility. God's sovereignty is, in fact, the foundation of human responsibility. And those two things go together. And then I'll have one practical application in this for all of us. So let's give attention to Matthew chapter 26. And before we do, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing as we read and hear his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time with these brothers and sisters. Thank you for their pastor and for their pastoral staff and the way that they minister God's word to them. I pray that these, my friends, my fellow believers would be built up in the faith, uh, that they would, uh, by the means of grace, uh, live lives of clear witness to Jesus Christ, that they would bear witness in word and deed with their lips and their lives to their neighbors and to the surrounding community here, that they would lift high the cross, that you would encourage them in every trial that they encounter, that you would make them to love one another well, and uh, that they would be a beacon on a hill, uh, a city on a hill, O oh Lord, uh, for, as trophies of your grace. We pray now that as we study your word, that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. And by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see what we are to learn from this passage and how we might give you praise and live for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 1, just the first five verses of Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know 
that after two days, the Passover is coming. And the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. In this passage tonight, I want you to see three things. I want you to see how Jesus shows that he is the knowing and willing sacrifice for our sin. You'll see that especially in verses 1 and 2. And then especially in verses 2 and 5, I want you to see how Matthew clearly highlights the sovereignty of God in Jesus' death in this passage. And then third and finally, especially in verses 3 to 5, I want you to see the cowardly plot of the religious leaders of Israel, and I want you to see that God will hold them responsible and culpable for their sin. I want you to see those three things tonight. Now, Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, speaks to them of something that he had told them before. He has been preparing them for his death for a good while, but it's almost like in this passage he declares to them, the time has finally come. You remember how often in his ministry he'll say, my time is not yet, my time is not yet. Now, he says, the time has come. In two days, these things that I have been telling you about for such a long time are going to come to pass. And we need to understand that this is one of the ways that Jesus emphasizes his knowing and willing sacrifice for our sins. The opening words of Matthew 26, when Jesus had finished all these words, are the final occurrence of a formula that appears at the end of each of Jesus' great discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And they alert us to the fact that his sermon on the end times is over and we've entered into a new part of the book. And here again, Jesus tells his disciples something that he has been warning of them of some time, his impending fate. And he does it emphatically and definitely even revealing for the first time the exact timing of his arrest and death. But remember, Jesus has done this repeatedly through the Gospel of Matthew. So keep your copy of God's Word open in front of you. Turn back to Matthew 12. Jesus had implicitly told the disciples about this event all the way back in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three nights and three, uh, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he's already warning them of this future event. Then in Matthew 16, verse 21, Jesus very explicitly warns them of his impending doom. 
from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. He does it again in Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead, which of course implies that he has died in order to be risen from the dead. In Matthew 17, 12, he also says, like so also, like John the Baptist, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. He explicitly uh, makes a declaration in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And then again in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus here, when he says, yet two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified is a continuation of something that he has been teaching his disciples for a long time. And the connection of Jesus' death with the Passover is very, very significant. It helps you understand the meaning of his death. Jesus' death as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb is at the core of our theology of what the death of Christ means, what the atonement means. And so Jesus, in announcing this, is announcing to the disciples something that he knows is coming and he is willing to embrace. It's vitally important for you to understand. A lot of times you'll hear people speak about the murder of Jesus, meaning it was an extrajudicial, illegal thing that was done by the chief priest, and that's very true. But Jesus is not the victim of a murder in a normal sense. Sometimes you will hear Jesus spoken of a victim. But what's so important for you to understand is that Jesus willingly dies. He willingly goes to the cross. He willingly embraces this faith for us. It is not something that is forced upon him by his enemies. In fact, remember what he says? No man takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And he's even emphatic about when he's going to die. So here he says, yet two days and I'm going to be delivered up and crucified. From the cross, he will say, into your hands I commend my spirit. Jesus decides when he's going to die. So he is not a powerless victim in the hands of people who are accomplishing their own will and thwarting the sovereign purposes of God. In fact, they're the tools. And he is sovereignly and willingly going to the cross. Listen to what Calvin says about this. Jesus willingly offered himself to die, and it had to be so. 
For only in a sacrifice of obedience could God be pleased. Jesus willingly obeys the command of the Father. Uh, You remember how he says, it is my food to do the will of him who sent me. And if it was the will of the one who sent me that he should die for his people's sin, Jesus willingly embraces that. That's so powerfully emphasized here in Matthew chapter 20, uh, 26, verse 2, when Jesus says, yet two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So that's the first thing that I want you to see. Matthew is showing you the majesty of Jesus. Here, Here he is with a swirling conspiracy around him. Powerful people are plotting against him, and he is completely in control. He knows what is going to happen. He knows when it is going to happen, and he willingly embraces this doom. And why does he do it? Because he loves you. Because he loves you, and it's the only way that your sins can be forgiven. He willingly embraces this, even in the midst of this awful, evil conspiracy swirling around him. Now the scene changes. Concentrate with me on verses 2 and 5. And I want you to see a real irony that Matthew has plopped down side by side in his gospel. He wants you to catch this irony in the passage because he puts it side by side. Jesus in verse 2 says, yet uh, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. But if you look at verse 5, the very people who have been conspiring and plotting to kill Jesus decide that they're not going to do it then. And Matthew records that. As they gathered together with Caiaphas, they decided this, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now, do not miss this irony. Here's Jesus saying, in two days, conspirators are going to deliver me into the hands of the Gentiles and I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to die. And the people that are conspiring to do that say, no, we're not going to do it this week during the festival. That'd be a really bad time. And Matthew puts them side by side. Don't miss the irony. Jesus says he's going to be handed over for crucifixion while the people who are plotting to hand him over for crucifixion say, no, we're not going to do it this week during the festival. Now, who turns out to be right? So is this not irony? Is it it not irony? Here, Here is Jesus. He's so sovereignly in control of this situation that the people who are secretly and in a cowardly way conspiring to kill him and who don't have the guts enough to do it during Passover because they feel like the people that like Jesus will get bent out of shape about it and will turn on them. They decide, no, we need to do it another time. And Jesus says, no, it's going to happen now. Even though they've decided it's not going to happen at that time. What's what's being shown to us here is that God's plan was sovereignly accomplished in Christ's death despite the plans of men. You know, there's that, there's that passage in the Westminster Confessions chapter on providence where it talks about God being able to, to work 
uh, with or above or against second causes? Well, here's God doing all of those things right here. These, these evil men and their plotting, definitely part of God's causes in bringing about the crucifixion of Jesus, but sometimes God works against their plans to bring about his perfect will. And we need to know that God's plan was sovereignly accomplished in Christ's death despite the plans of men. Peter never forgot this, by the way. We mentioned this morning that in Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he would say, this man who was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of sinful men. And the early Christians prayed in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, for truly in this city there were gathered together against his holy servant, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, and then listen to what they pray, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Peter understood the sovereignty of God in all these things. Just as God was sovereign in the greatest trial of Jesus' life, and here's my great application for the message for all of us tonight, so he is sovereign in the greatest trials in your life. If, if God can be my, right in the middle of the most evil act ever performed in the history of the universe, working it for his glory and for your eternal salvation, there is no awful, obscene event in your life over which Romans 8, 28 is not true. God is working all things for the good of those who love him. God's sovereign providence is in the midst of everything. Just like he was in the midst of the betrayal of Judas and the betrayal of the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes. I love what Octavius Winslow said, who delivers Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. So yes, these are actors on the stage of human history, and we're going to see in just a few moments, they're held accountable for their sin, but God is sovereign even in the plotting of the enemies of Jesus. Third, if you look at verses 3 to 5, we need to know that though God overrules our wickedness and always works his purposes out in spite of our evil designs, just like we saw this morning when we quoted Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, we are still culpable for what we do. The, the logic in the Bible is never God is sovereign, therefore we're not responsible. You know, since God is sovereign, it doesn't matter what I do. That's never biblical logic. Biblical logic is always because God is sovereign, therefore I am responsible. And we learn it right here. Look at verses 3 to 5. The chief priests and elders of the people are gathered together in court, in the court of the high priest Caiaphas, and they plot together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. Now, the evil actions of the Sanhedrin are apparent here. A private meeting to plot the execution of a person not yet convicted was a clear violation of Jewish law. 
Now, these people, understand, they are motivated by what they think are of the highest moral importance. They, They actually think that they're doing something good. And yet they are having a meeting which is clearly a violation of Jewish law. These, uh, the, the scribes were part of this group too, and one of the commentators says they're not mentioned here since there was not much biblical exposition going on at that meeting. You know, th- these people are circumventing the scriptures. They're not applying the scriptures, they're circumventing the scriptures. These Jewish leaders had long ago decided to try to kill Jesus, but here they were concerned about the place and the time of their plan. Roman security was heightened during the Passover. Many of Jesus' supporters were amongst the crowds of pilgrims that were in Jerusalem. So at first, they decided that they were going to postpone their evil plan until after the Passover where there would be less danger for a public reaction against what they had done. But God is sovereign. And Judas, according to God's design, facilitated the implementation of the plan two days later. Go back and look at verse 2. Jesus said, yet two days and the Son of Man will be delivered. And in two days, Judas initiated the betrayal. And yet, though God is sovereign, though God is in control here, over and over in the Gospels and Acts, both the Jewish leaders and Judas are held responsible for their actions. Matthew 26, 21, Matthew 26, 24, and 25 Matthew 26, verses 47 and 50, clearly hold Judas responsible for his actions. Matthew 26, 14 and 57, Matthew 27, verse 1, clearly hold the Jewish leaders responsible for their actions. So, though God is sovereign, and though God is using their evil designs for his own purposes, they are still held to account. They have no excuse before God for what they have done. So we never ever use the doctrine of sovereignty to excuse ourselves of responsibility. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is never a pass for us to do what is against God's word or it is never a pass for us to fail to do what our responsibility is. And so we see that God's sovereignty goes together with human responsibility in this passage. But the great message in all of this, again, I want to come back to for us, is that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is a profound consolation and comfort that gives us courage and confidence to live the Christian life. Because even when we see great evil in this world and in our lives, God is ultimately in control. And we are never merely the victims of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. We're never victims of a meaningless universe throwing its horrific tricks at us in life. 
God is always in control, even of the worst things that happen to us. Just two weeks ago, our wonderful uh, admissions director, a recent RTS uh, Jackson graduate, Step Morgan, was out riding his bicycle, doing mountain biking on a Saturday. It's one of the ways he loves to get exercise and let off steam. And he had a terrible accident and was in alone in an isolated place for a long period of time, lost a lot of blood. We thought we were going to lose Step. He's had 10 surgeries in the last two weeks, and the doctors have had to remove half of his leg. That's an awful, awful thing. Is that just an accident? Was that completely out of God's control? Did he not know that that was coming? Or even in that, is God working for the good of his servant step and his wonderful wife, Jessica, and their wonderful children and the congregation of Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church in Jackson where they are members and active participants? Oh my, Jess and Step's testimonies over the last two weeks? There's no telling what fruit that they have borne in the lives of other people. Steps already telling people, if you have something awful that has happened in your life and you, don't, you can't figure it out, please come talk to me. And I want to tell you about the Lord and how he has helped me through this and how you too can find peace and confidence and comfort in Jesus Christ. It is so important for the comfort and consolation of the Christian life that we understand that God is sovereign. And if God could be sovereign in the midst of the death of Jesus, God is sovereign everywhere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would give us confidence in the truth of your good, sovereign providence over everything so that we might live with energy and confidence and boldness and courage even in the midst of the discouragements and the trials of this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.